0: Seattle, Washington. I'm Zach Jabal, and this is Next Round, a Vine Pair Podcast Conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to focus on the issues and stories in the drinks world. Today, I'm speaking with Wright Thompson, author of the newly released Pappyland. Wright, thanks so much for your time. No, it's my pleasure. So let's start out with uh, just a little bit about how, how did this idea come to be? What was it about uh, the story of uh, Julian Van Winkle, who's kind of the the centerpiece of the story and, and the the I guess the kind of at this point, the sort of living connection to the history of, of Pappy Van Winkle. How, how did this all kind of come about?
1: I mean, I met Julian years ago at a party in Atlanta, and I obviously knew what Van Winkle was and liked it. Uh, I, uh, uh, But I didn't really know the story. Like, I sort of falsely and unfairly assumed that he was like a little Richie Rich, you know? <laughs> uh, like, just... You know, born on third base and thought he had a triple, just inherited this booze empire. And it turns out when I found out that, you know, his grandfather, Pappy, had built it. And then his father, through no fault of his own, just, you know, the bourbon business completely collapsed in the late 60s and 70s. And uh, they lost the distillery. So Julian built it back up from scratch. And it took a very long time. I mean, to the point that he took out so many loans to keep this thing afloat against all sound business reason that, uh, they're finally paying the loans off this year. Wow. Like 2021 will be the first year in the black. That's amazing,
0: and, and it, it's interesting. You know, one of the one of the things that comes through extremely strongly in the book, uh, in, in, at least in my reading of it, is there's this real sense of of loss and regret that seems palpable. Maybe to you know to sort of Julian's life story and, and to the story of the of the distillery and of the bourbon, but also like, I think, I mean, again, I don't, I, I apologize if I'm reading too much into it, but, but it feels like something that kind of connected the two of you that, that, that there's a, that sort of, you know, the things that the, the, way that the bourbon takes him back in time seems to resonate with you too. Is that, is that
1: accurate? Well, that, and, and, you know, I read, or actually I heard it in that, in a, that Dolly Parton's America podcast, mm. which is brilliant. If you haven't listened to that, uh, but it, it was this. The, the, the person who made it had this point where they said that and I didn't know this, but nostalgia comes from the Greek words for home and pain. Mm. And that really, you know, that idea feels it like it is in the same frequency and key as bourbon. And so, I mean, yes, there is this idea that the uh, a bottle of aged, finely crafted bourbon is both. Uh, proof of the inexorable passage of time uh and also in some ways a uh attempt to stop it like i like that both i mean it's everything dies maybe that's a fact but maybe everything that dies one day comes back sort of thing mm-hmm.
0: it's both very cool and and i know you, you kind of mentioned a little bit uh previously the sort of the struggle that julian went through to kind of bring the the bourbon back from the dead essentially and and obviously the the there's much more than we're going to get to in this interview but in the book is full of like just these incredible sort of recountings of of everything that he went through but i think that one piece of it that i'm fascinated by is is you know in a way he's almost haunted by the the whiskey and that he tasted as a, you know, as a young person that when, when his family still owned the distillery and, and, you know, I I guess I would just love, you know, your, your perspective on, you know, what that, you know, it's like, it feels like it's, I mean, literally kind of a part of him. Is that, was that your sense?
1: It, it, It feels like one, it feels like it's very much a part of him. And two, when you realize that, that it's real, that he is not trying to make, find bourbon, and he's not trying to make highly sought-after bourbon, and he's not trying to make bourbon that the best palates in the world find perfect. He is trying to... He's on a memory quest mm-hmm. to try to put bourbon out into the world every year that reminds him of this smell and this taste that doesn't exist anymore. You know, it, it, if you if you stumble across an old bottle of even just crap bourbon, you know, I got a pint not crap, but just mid-level stuff. I got a pint from the 70s a couple of weeks ago of uh, a bottle of a pint of old Charter. Mm -hmm. And it's better than, I mean, it's unbelievable. So like just what people accept now as the standard, because the bourbon industry is so run by accountants and tax lawyers that, you know, they could make a better thing. They just choose not to. And craft distillers have no shot because they don't have access to these huge rickhouses and the capital it takes to sit this stuff up there for 23 years. And frankly, you know, the deeply ingrained handed down knowledge of uh, barrels and rickhouses. I mean, distillers don't make bourbon. Warehouses do and barrels do. And the men, you know, the most, to me, the most important person at a distillery is the person in charge of the houses. I mean, anybody can build a, get a still off the internet and make whiskey, you know? I mean, I, you and I could be making whiskey in 72 <laughs> hours, you know, literally. Yeah. And so, uh, that's what's so interesting is that he is chasing something that he knows is gone mm-hmm. and that can never come back. And like, so if, if, if there is, Sort of, it's that thing you talked about earlier. I mean, the the regret and loss.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, because because I think it's such an interesting piece of this story, and and I think of of a particular interest to a lot of our listeners who, you know, may have had a chance to to try a little bit of some of the more. you know, what is out there from from the distillery, um, but not not from the original distillery, which, you know, kind of the new project that Julian's been working on. So can you yeah. talk a little bit about how how the original Pappy Van Winkle came to be and kind of what because one of the fun things about the book, of course, is that, you know, it's a story of of these sort of three generations of the Van Winkle family. And and Pappy seems like a real character um, and and an iconoclast in the bourbon industry at the time. So can you talk a little bit about the founding of the distillery yeah. and of the brand?
1: So, uh, yeah, I mean, it it helps to go back to Pappy, who started the Stitzel-Weller Distillery. It opened on Derby Day 1935. They broke ground literally the day after Prohibition ended. And they made a lot of, they made Cabin Still, they made Rebel Yell, they made uh, Old Weller, but their flagship brand was Old Fitzgerald and Very Old Fitzgerald and Very, Very Old Fitzgerald. And so that was, Fine aged weeded bourbon. Uh, Julian's father, Pappy, died in 1965, and Julian's father took over. Uh, Julian's father was a legit war hero, Silver Star in the Pacific, just a badass, you know. And but he, by 1972, he had lost the distillery. Uh, the whiskey business was just in free fall, and it's pretty much stayed in free fall until the year 2000. Julian's dad left Stitzel Weller after he had to sell it and started the old Rip Van Winkle distillery. And he was buying barrels of Stitzel Weller that he had made, buying back barrels of his old whiskey and bottling it. And it was just, it was the only thing he knew how to do. And he just couldn't imagine a life not in the whiskey business. And then he died relatively soon thereafter. And you know, Julian always felt like losing the distillery killed him. I mean, it's mm-hmm. interesting. Julian said there were two things you didn't talk to his dad about the war and losing the distillery <laughs> to sort of let you know how both of those things existed in the same, you know, home and pain again, you know? Uh, and so when Julian's dad died, Julian was like, well, I don't know what else to do. And so he just, you know, spent through the inheritance and started borrowing money and he kept putting this whiskey out and, uh, he was bottling a lot of different stuff. A lot of old boon that was made, uh, which is so good it was made by wild turkey and then in the 90s he got a phone call from somebody over at the at the distillery and they were selling these barrels of Weller bourbon and i mean nobody wanted this stuff which is crazy to think about now I mean Stitzel Weller bourbon, which everyone considers is the finest bourbon ever made and that will ever be made, was two percent of the Crown Royal blend. I know you that story. I
0: I didn't know that until reading the book, and I had to put the book down for a couple minutes just to sit with that. No,
1: it's just like you have to like it's unbelievable how much money they threw away. Yeah, uh, you know. Uh, and so Julian started bottling this stuff, and he had old Stitzel Weller. And so as a tribute to Pappy he started putting out Pappy Van Winkle and no one wanted it for a little while. And then was it 1997, the beverage, I don't even know what the beverage Institute is. And I wrote a book about this stuff, (laughs) but he got a, uh, he, they got a 99 score, which sort of set the, the chefy booze world on fire. And, you know, in the way that whatever Anna Wintour puts on Vogue ends up in Kmart six years later, you know, I mean, like that score and the chefs, Fascination with this perfect product, filtered, yeah, and you know a bourbon phrase craze ignited, and I mean, you know it's post hoc ergo propter hoc. You know, it, to the degree to which Julian started the craze or was the first beneficiary of it is sort of impossible to sort out. But I mean, it started with him. Now, mm-hmm. you know, the the hows and the mechanisms of that are really hard to sort of unwind. But you know. The bourbon world we know today started basically then.
0: Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, you you mentioned that that whole, you know, kind of sea change in bourbon where it went from, you know, again, something that was, you know, basically – you know, there was no market for high end bourbon or even maybe mid tier bourbon to now where it is and i'm wondering you know obviously julian has in some ways benefited from that you know you 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 mentioned at the beginning you know your kind of impression of him before ever meeting him was kind of you know yeah here's this guy who who lucked his way into this you know inheritance essentially yeah. but but i'm wondering you know what is his you know how does he? I guess what I would say is you know there's something that I I, I get out of the book and, and sense, but I don't want to. You know you've you've met the man and spent time with him, and obviously wrote a book about him and with him, and so you know my sense is that you know that at best it's sort of um, there's a pain to the sense that this has become something that is so sought after, and, and well, it obviously oh, it, has benefit.
1: It really, but I mean it. You know. It has benefits, but not that many benefits. I mean, they don't make enough of it. Mm -hmm. Nobody's getting rich. Yeah, He's just getting yelled at. You know what (laughs) I mean? uh, But, I mean, all he wants is for every single person who drinks bourbon to be able to drink old Rip Van Winkle every single day. And then to have, you know, the three bottles of Pappy are not meant to be, you know, a stepladder of greatness. They're three very different things. Yeah, And so, I mean, I think in his mind, he would love for everyone's decanter to be full of old rip and for you to have a bottle of 15, 20 or 23, depending on what you like for special occasions Mm -hmm. and that every person who loves bourbon would be able to do that. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what he would like. I mean, he's the first person who'll tell you no bourbon in the world is worth $3,000. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting because. You know, I mean, they're really against the secondary market for a lot of reasons. But the biggest one is there's a lot of counterfeiting out there. Yep. Someone has, I uh, hope oh, I'm not talking out of school saying this. Uh, I don't remember if this is in the book or not. I might have found this out afterwards. <laughs> I don't remember. This will be interesting. Because uh, uh, I kept hanging out with them after the book was finished. So there sure. are a couple of things I learned afterwards that, that you know, were too late for the book. Someone has a, a Buffalo Trace capper. Ah. Uh. So, like, you can't really tell the difference Mm -hmm. between the fakes and the real ones, except for, like, sort of hidden things that only the distillery knows. And so some of these fakes are really good. And, uh, I mean, so all the fakes that get confiscated get sent to the distillery, and Julian goes in and tastes them. Yeah. And he's always like, he's like, surprisingly, some people put really good whiskey in the fakes. Yeah. He's like, it's not ours, but it's good. But, if you know that he's on a memory quest and that he wants every bottle to be the closest he can do to putting out a very specific taste and smell out into the world, the counterfeits not only are cheating people, it defeats his entire purpose for doing it,
0: yeah that's fascinating i mean i I think it's so it's so easy to to get relegated, and, and I think I'm guilty of this, like many people, to sort of framing any conversation around his his bourbons as sort of this conversation about the price and the scarcity and the and the you know conflict between the the demand and the secondary market and 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 not thinking so much about you know how I mean that's one of the reasons I love reading the book is it's this, this in, obviously this incredibly personal journey for for julian and and you know you you just get this sense of um yeah this you know it is it is very moving and and gives the and gives the bourbon a sort of um you know i I guess in in some ways you know there's there's not well it's weird I, i this is my conjecture so you can tell me if you agree or disagree but but it you know bourbon has become this huge industry and and you know you mentioned the sort of Let's say decline in overall quality that's come with a lot of sort of shortcuts that are taken for for financial reasons, whether it's you know uh, barreling and bottling yeah. and lower proofs or or just releasing products earlier with less aging or all of the above. But but it is interesting to think about how um, how there is a there's something else going on here that's not a commercial story because it's I think those of us in the in the drinks industry are guilty of sometimes looking at big price tags and thinking about these things through that lens exclusively.
1: Well, it's interesting because, I mean, when he jo- joined up with Buffalo Trace, I think he was selling twenty five hundred cases a year, hmm. and now I think they're selling between nine and ten thousand cases a year. And you, it's you still can't ever, you still don't see it on a shelf ever, yeah, unless it's absurd, you know. Uh, I love, I love to send him pictures from liquor stores of prices <laughs> on bottles because it makes him fucking crazy (laughs) so i i love to do it it's one of my favorite things like oh here we go here's a bottle of old rip on sunset boulevard for sixteen hundred dollars you know like i love to do that because it just makes his head explode uh but he's also you got to understand this is a guy whose family was on the very top of the bourbon world when bourbon was the dominant drink in America and he watched it all slip through their fingers and he is living. I mean, 15, 20 and 23 years in the future and having to try to understand what America is going to want to drink after he's dead. Yeah. The stuff they're putting bottles now, he won't ever, the stuff they're putting in barrels now, he won't ever live to see it bottled. Mm -hmm. And so he is, very conservative because he's been through the bust and there are a lot of people in the industry now who haven't. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he also doesn't want to put so much stuff in barrels that he screws his son Preston. Like in some ways, his grandfather sort of put his father in a jackpot. You know, he's like very aware of the fact that this could all stop and everyone could just start drinking gin. Yeah. And so like, there are a lot of people who want to know, why don't you make more? Well, it's because he doesn't know if we're going to want to buy it. Yeah, I'm curious. And, you know, I
0: mean, so it, yeah. Oh, sorry, I, I just wanted to ask real quick because I think this is actually a, a important piece of this too that that there's, um, you know, you, you talked about having lived through that bust cycle for bourbon and, and how so many people in the industry now just haven't because it's been sort of 20 years of growth um, since 2000 or even since a little before yeah. then. But I'm wondering, you know, the other piece of this that's really interesting to me is that, you know, the original story of his grandfather is sort of someone setting out to make a product that was that was distinctive from what else was on the market, you know, a bourbon that was corn and wheat, not corn and rye. And yeah. and obviously that's something that's been that's been carried through um in you know, what Julian is doing now, but that obviously at the same time with the success of of, you know, Old Van Winkle and and his newer products. Like that is that not that it was a secret ever, but like there are more and more people making weeded bourbons. Is, is that something that he views kind of positively as in like this is the best way to make bourbon or or as like, uh, you know, now there's more risk of of too many oh, things. that no, are similar.
1: He, he likes it because it gives him stuff he can buy that he likes to drink. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> and, 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 you know, you drive around Kentucky, you see a lot of cornfields and you see a lot of wheat fields and bourbon was never designed to be a recipe. Bourbon is an agricultural crop. I mean, it's it's a way of a way for farmers who live too far from market to get all of their crops to market before it rot, rots. It was a way to preserve that profit. And so, like every whiskey manual you got up until the the lobbyists got involved in Washington and started writing these rules about what it could and couldn't be. There's no such thing as a recipe. You use what grains you had, and so it's so interesting about how hard muscle memory habits are to break because a lot of bourbons still use rye, but there's no rye grown in the state of Kentucky. It is grown in Pennsylvania and you know, the upper Midwest and uh, and all those distillers who moved from Pennsylvania sort of running from the tax man to Kentucky when it was still the frontier, they just knew how to use rye and they kept bringing it in. So in a lot of ways, Weeded bourbon is of Kentucky in a way that rye bourbon is not.
0: That makes sense. And I'm curious, you, know, you mentioned the the sort of the, the legalities and the and the sort of legal definitions. This is just, I'm curious, your personal opinion on this, having been kind of heavily involved in this. Um, you know, is it something that you find, like, obviously nowadays you can make bourbon legally called bourbon anywhere in the U.S. There are obviously certain requirements you have to meet, but it does not have to be a yeah. Kentucky product. How do you, I mean, is that... I mean, does it feel to you like bourbon should be a Kentucky thing exclusively?
1: No, I mean I think anybody should be able to make anything. Okay, you know, I mean I think, uh, I mean I understand the the you know lobbying interest desire to make it a monopoly. You know, I mean that for sure. Uh, and a lot of you know you got to look on those labels because Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey is made in Ohio yeah. or Indiana a lot. And so like, you got to look, you know, the weather is perfect in Kentucky for, it can age less in Kentucky. Like it's so interesting that bourbon ages match the age of Scotches. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's because it's what, you know, 10 and 12 and 15 year old are ages that Scotch drinkers are used to seeing and they denote quality. But what's so interesting is that a Scottish, the Scottish seasons are so much milder than the Kentucky seasons that a 12-year-old scotch is about the same in terms of being aged as a four-year-old bourbon. Mm-hmm. So these 12-year-old bourbons have gone through as much of the processes of aging and the barrels breathing the liquor in and out of the wood as a 36-year-old scotch. Mm-hmm. so, like, It's really crazy to the degree to which the marketing – I mean, a four-year-old bourbon is good bourbon. Mm-hmm. You know, Maker's Mark is good. And, it, and it's, sometimes it feels like we're trying to compare things to scotch.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I have one last question for you, and this might be a difficult one, so I apologize in advance. I but, love those. <laughs> but in the process of uh, of working on this book, or, or even maybe uh, afterwards hanging out with Julian, is there a singular bourbon experience, like one that you had that still is at the top of the list?
1: I mean, I've, had a, I've had a couple. Uh, we, we went to his basement one time. And uh, so he had an old, like, you know, they call them blue caps. They're Mm -hmm. the tasting half pints or quarter pints, whatever they are, half pints probably. But he had an old Stitzelweller blue cap of white dog from the 60s off of the Stitzelweller still. And that was unbelievable because, you know, I don't want to name names and be a jerk, but, like, they are very expensive modern bourbons that are not as smooth as that white dog. Wow. You know, I had – I had some Stitzel Weller bottled in '68. I had some some six. I've had some '63 Stützel Weller that Pappy did. Uh, you know, one of the coolest is uh, there are like five bottles left in the world of that '97 20 year old. that got the '99 score, mm-hmm. and we were at Julian's house one day, and he pulled one out, and he goes, "This is it. You want to open it?" And I was just like, "We can't open it. <laughs> like yeah. I can't. You got to save this for your kids or something. Don't open it." And he was like, no, you're probably right. But it was like, I had this moment where I was like, this is not, this is, we've gone, too, I've gone too far. Yeah. Like, like I, I, I have carte blanche to raid this guy's unbelievable whiskey collection, and I, I've gone too far now, and I have to stop. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, those are pretty great. And, uh, but, I mean, just a lot, you know. Yeah. I'm mean, I, I drinking a lot of fucking Van Winkle. <laughs> that's an uh, occupational hazard i guess it really is i mean like the joke is i'm really glad we couldn't go on a book tour because some part of me thinks this this is a book tour that if you go on some part of you never comes home mm-hmm. yeah so i'm uh i'm uh i'm very pleased that i got to stay home and not die yeah
0: for sure yeah you walk into any bar with julian and it's probably yeah probably not going to end early i'm betting if anyone knows it doesn't yeah Uh, Well, right. Thank you so much. It's, it's a really wonderful book. Like I said, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun for for anyone who really is interested in in bourbon and, and, and also is very, I think, you know, there's a lot of emotion in it, which I think is really cool. It's, it was more, I was, like I said, I was, I was surprised at how much sort of, you know, emotion and pathos there is in the book. Maybe not, shouldn't have been surprised given, given the subject matter, but, but it's really more than just a a sort of a straight history of, um,
1: of the brand and of the family. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I wanted it to reflect what it's like to drink bourbon, not just to be a sort of static, boring story of how one particular bourbon is made. I mean, I wanted it to have that entire universe in an evening the way it is when you share really nice bourbon with people. So that's what, that's what we are going. That's what I was going for.
0: Thanks so much for listening to the VinePair Pair podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Buying Pair is produced by myself and Zach Jabal. It is also mixed and edited by him. Yeah, Zach, we know you do a lot. I'd also like to thank the entire Buying Pair team, including my co-founder, Josh, and our associate editor, Kat Winsley. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week.